0: Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. Jack Cashel
1: is a prolific Irish-American author, public speaker and filmmaker. Born and raised in Newark, New Jersey and now living in Kansas City. Say what they may, Jack Cashel is hugely entertaining, a brilliant writer, journalist, filmmaker and researcher. Some critics have accused him of peddling conspiracy theories. But Jack fires back that his work starts with logic and common sense. Jack is in the middle of his latest book, and I think it could be a blockbuster, on the decline and collapse of his native Newark, New Jersey, and the lessons learned here and in other urban American centers. Jack says the popular narrative of why Newark collapsed in the 1960s is wrong. His book, Out Early Next Year, will set the record straight, we presume. And Jack Cashel is my guest coming up. What part did the race riots play in any of this?
2: Uh, they, they were the uh, final straw. You know, the, that for so many people I talked to said, that was it. I can't I can't deal with this anymore. Mm-hmm. So many of the merchants lost their businesses. Uh, and those were mostly Jewish merchants, too, by the way. Uh, and my, the riots singed my neighborhood. They, they, at the, the fringe of my neighborhood had full-scale rioting. What saved my neighborhood was that the armory was a block from my ass, you know. <laughs> uh,
0: we keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people.
1: Before we get to my interview with the author Jack Cashel in a wee moment, it's first time for our weekly Future Shock 2.0 with Ira Wolf on the future of work and labour force trends. Ira Wolf, do you need to go to college in America to get ahead and get a career, and
3: more globally, what's the picture? That is, I guess, maybe the billion-dollar question, the trillion-dollar question about do you need a college degree? Obviously, colleges and the traditional paths have said, yes, you need that. A lot of companies have said, yes, you need a college degree. But in truth, the only companies, the, the only organizations, the only jobs that require a traditional four-year degree, which is now, now it sometimes takes six and 10 years to get that traditional four-year degree, it are professions that require a licensure, like uh, such as in health. I mean, I, I came from this world. So I want my doctor, my dentist, I want an engineer, I want my accountant to have some formal training. I want them to be licensed and certified and have that experience. But the hot jobs, the in-demand jobs, and we've talked about this before, the in-demand jobs, many of those do not require the traditional four-year degree. In fact, many of those, uh, and there's a rebirth in this, is apprenticeships that going into the high school, almost going back to the old VOTEC, but in the past, VOTEC was just for the trades. Now they're talking about votech being available for healthcare. How do you get people into healthcare? How do you get them to be uh, nursing. How do you get them into the labs uh, and and growing from there? And then from from the lab uh, or from a CNA, they become an RN. Or from an RN, they become a physician. From a dental assistant, they become a dental hygienist. Uh, from an aide, they become a, a PA, a physician assistant or, or a nurse practitioner. Uh, so they're moving up the ladder. And rather than having a traditional graduate from high school. Uh, to go to four-year college, four-year professional school, and then go into the field. Now it may be a ten or a twelve or even a fifteen-year journey. Uh, but people are going along the way and not coming out with an enormous amount of debt. Um, but working for organizations that nurture that. Uh, but we talk about uh, other jobs. I mean, can, the trades. Uh, there are certain jobs that are just not at high risk. There was a recent uh, a Conference Board study. They came out and they identified the risk of of shortages and the trades and production jobs, many, many manufacturing jobs, technology jobs, healthcare jobs, they were all right at the top of that list. Uh, but it wasn't just why they had the shortages, but it was the difficulty in training those people or just the shortage of people. So, for instance, we've had a shortage of male workers. It's it's dropped Significantly, and most significantly, it's dropped in the sixteen to thirty-four year old. Wow, which would be the prime age. So, yeah. look at traditional construction jobs, um, where which was primarily a male-dominated uh, workforce, and the most significant uh, shortage is in their supply chain of, of males. Now, again, many women are are entering this construction trades, but it's still. Not the, not the traditional scope we get, but they don't require uh, beyond a. Uh, I would say you need beyond a second uh, a secondary degree, some type of training. It could be in a tech it could be in a career and technical school, it could be in a community college. Community colleges, I think, are going to boom. Um, but many organizations are now they're they're saying they're lowering the requirement for experience and education uh, okay. to get the job. That doesn't mean they're lowering the bar. They're just coming back to what I've called for years cre- credential creep. Oh. There's a lot of people that have a two-year degree. Let's, we're going to have that minimum. Oh, there's a lot. We, we have our abundance of talent that has a four-year degree. So it made us easy to qualify or disqualify people just because they didn't have a degree or they had two or three years experience or five years experience. Now that's gone. So companies now are starting to look at potential. They're looking at people that have the right attitude, the right ethic, the right fit. And they're starting to upskill and reskill you know, people in in that realm so ultimately, this is all a threat to traditional four-year colleges, but there is still going to be a need, a, a higher need, because we have more more skills, more difficult skills, a higher need for post-high school education. But is it going to be the traditional bachelor's degree that we've known and loved for the last 40 years? Absolutely not.
1: Thank you, Ira Wolf. Ira is a workforce trends expert and public speaker, and you can hear him on his own podcast, Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization. It's really interesting stuff. And if you want another great podcast, listen to Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Bove and Matt Van Alstein of Odeon Capital Group, Along with yours truly, Odeon Capital Conversations is a top-rated Apple podcast in North America and in Europe. On the latest episode, you can learn more about why banks in America are investing heavily in advanced technology and why the country is losing over 50 banks each quarter because of all the intense competition and pressures. It's called Odeon Capital Conversations. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. I hope you're all well. I have a great guest coming up. He's Jack Cashel. I've known Jack for some time. He's a prolific author and a proud Irish-American, born and raised in Newark, New Jersey, and now living in Kansas City, where I caught up with him from here in the New Jersey area, Jack's old homestead. Jack's in the middle of his latest book, which will tell the stories of the great migration of white people from Newark in the 1960s, what went wrong, and he will look at the often overlooked reasons which he believes prompted this mass exodus. It will be a thought-provoking, even a provocative read, but worth picking up when it comes out next year. I think it's going to be a great one. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Jack Cashel, at the risk of sounding, let's say, a little bit hokey, I'm going to extend you a Cade Me La foite because I know you'll get that. Not all of my guests will, but it's a... Um, it's an Irish greeting, and you're an Irish-American, and I'm really proud to have you on my show. Cade me Lafalta, a thousand million welcomes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I knew you'd get an, that. In
2: age of inflation, that, that uh, translates to like three welcomes like a, you know, five
1: years ago. <laughs> well, you got the wit of the Irish too, I can uh, see. Uh, um, so you're, I'm up in New Jersey, your old homeland as it were, but Ireland right. is your ancestral homeland. Yeah. And you're in Kansas City today. Correct. Um, a lot of people know you as this prolific author and ghostwriter and a frequent contributor to numerous publications. And I could go on and on, but just tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Sure. And, you know, because the project I'm working on now is a project very close to home for me. And, and that is, it's, it's, the working title is Dispossessed. Uh, the Untold Story of America's Great Ethnic Diaspora. In a sense, uh, my family is the victim of two diasporas. The first one, when my great-great-grandfather left uh, uh, Ireland in, uh, in 1847, Black 47, in the midst of the potato famine, left County Waterford and came to New Jersey, and he uh, landed in the Princeton area Eventually, the, and moved to Princeton. Eventually, the family moved to Newark, where I grew up. And, um, and just the gist of the book is and because I could encapsulate, encapsulate my own story in it is that in the 1960s uh, Newark uh, collapsed and those of us who were there at the time uh, were forced to, to, to leave, to move, to go elsewhere. And the way that has been uh, you know, created by the people in control of the narratives like the media and academia is that it was white flight, that we were afraid of Black people, and that we just fled, you know, just for the heck of it. But it's an absolutely false story that needs to be untold, and that's basically what I'm doing in this book, uh, The Dispossessed. No one wanted to leave. Uh, we had a wonderful neighborhood in Newark and the Roseville section, particularly sort of an Irish section in Newark, and they built a highway right through our, our neighborhood. It's like a, a dagger right through the heart of the, uh, Roseville, and and what, we're, they took my house, <laughs> you know I mean? It was... Uh, uh, we had to leave in our case. And then our, the neighborhood collapsed around it. You know, when you have a, you just imagine throwing like a, a basketball-sized court 20 feet deep in the middle of a, a thriving, you know, commercial neighborhood uh, built around the church, you know, a very communal, very traditional, uh, and just very lively in a secular sense as well. And and it was all gone. And 10 Gosh. Years
1: so take us back to that, the popular narrative that the white people were leaving because of the black people. That's not thats not accurate.
2: No. Uh, and it's, you know, I in this I have the advantage here in speaking from my own experience and what I knew and what I could see. And I'm using, by the way, my neighborhood in Roseville, uh, in, in particular, in general, the city of Newark, and in larger to... Uh, all cities throughout the northeast and north central United States so we went through under, underwent the same thing. And by the way, I, I, anyone who has a story to tell, I welcome them to to contact me through my website Cashel.com, because I'm I'm looking for personal stories.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, we make sure we emphasize that throughout the uh, this episode.
2: Yeah, what happened? And I, I just you know uh, a good summary of what happened uh, and the way that the dynamic works is that. In 2017, this woman from Princeton University, scholar on uh, white flight, uh, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. Uh, you know, introducing her thesis as the white flight was it just pure racism or was it also economics? That's what she debated. She said, just like the 2016 election, did people vote for Donald Trump because of racism or economics or a combination of the both? That was the those are the alternatives posed, and. So I read the op-ed, and it was just typical academic op-ed. And by the way, it wasn't nearly as bad as the the kind of theses generated by uh, the anti-racist crowd, like the Kendi and all those kind of people. So then I looked at the comments. There were over 800 comments. Wow. And I, I expected the comments to be, this being New York Times readers, John, I expected the comments to be, oh, you didn't go far enough in blasting those white people, those, you know. But. It had to be a shock to the uh, author herself because the comment was one after another. Let me tell you what happened in Detroit. Let me tell you what happened in Baltimore. Let me happen to tell you what happened in Cleveland. Let me tell you what happened in Boston. You have very specific descriptions of uh, relentlessly violent crime. And, uh, and then people would say, how could you possibly write an op-ed in the New York Times about white flight and not mention crime or schools, you know? Uh, this and people were were flabbergasted, and and the uh, author Leah Bustan, had to be devastated by these comments because what she she concludes her essay with this John she says, um, you know it could be this it could be that the reasons people left but you know no one has uh, uh, articulated the reasons they left and they probably don't even know why. It was just such a condescending piece of crap, you know. You, yeah, I had already talked to fifty people who told me exactly why they left, you know. Yeah, and I knew why we left. Uh, and um, so that was, I, I realized I'm just exploring a 60-year a myth uh, that has uh, hardened into, uh, you know, dogma in academia, and that's almost completely untrue, right? But we, we
1: have heard and we read the stories about the rioting during that period. Right. Uh, you know, the headlines, the Bronx is burning, Detroit, and all of that. So had it, hadn't this some part in white people leaving?
2: Oh yeah, and uh, I will tell you, you know, uh, there was a major riot in Newark in 1967. It was the first major riot in the Northeast, and 26 people were killed, including one cop and one fireman. Um, and so, you know, when I first posted this on my alumni, my grade school alumni homepage, I, I got all these outpouring of people wanting to tell stories and. Yeah, it affected because it because it singed our neighborhood. And um, like the one woman told me, she goes, I left because of the riots. I said, what do you mean you left because of the riots? Was, was like, was that what provoked you? No, she said, they came down my street. They were attacking our my parents in my house. You know, My sister's boyfriend had to come to rescue us. They knocked us down while we were trying to get to our car. We never came back. That's, that is kind of a direct provocation. I had a friend, uh, one friend, a good friend of mine who's a Democrat. And uh, his wife's very liberal, and we, uh, I was talking to them when I was back in New Jersey last month, and I said to him, you know, because uh, this is seen to be like a racist thing, but Democrats are not racist, of course, they're above that. And I said to him, I said, Art, uh, why did you finally leave? Because he lived on my block, and, but they did not the highway didn't take his house, so his, his house was still there, his apartment. He was living with his widowed mother. He was probably 21 years old, 22. And I said, why did you finally leave? And then he's searching for the word. And he said, "Ah, the neighborhood finally became untenable. And I said, Art, what what does untenable mean? Explain untenable. He goes, untenable means when your mother gets mugged for the second time, that's untenable. When your home gets invaded for the second time, that's untenable. Uh, When we moved to the block, John, and my family moved to the block in 1953, There's a black family living next door to us when we moved there. You know, there's a triplex with three black families in it, and ours was a triplex with three white families. Our block had been integrated as long as as I knew it. You know, there was no panic, there was no flight. They would tell the story about, and I've read this fifty times. If I read it once, blockbusters would come and they'd go to the homeowners and say they're moving in. And sometimes these blockbusters would hire black women push baby carriages down the street, blah blah blah. Well, you know, I just looked at the 1950 census on my block. Ninety-five percent of the people were renters. Every single person on that block. There were uh, three hundred sixty-three people living on a block, one block long.
1: Yeah.
2: And uh, uh, and there were represented among them was every single working class occupation you could possibly imagine, including yeah. casket maker. You know, rubber mold. <laughs> oh I mean, there wow! Was, you know, uh, there was not a professional on the block.
1: Okay. Uh,
2: and then, uh, just to give you another sense of what happened. in to America, cities, there were 93 families' units on that block. 91 of them were male headed. In two cases, there was either widow or, or divorcee. 91 out of ed- 93
1: they were male headed. So, intact family right. Right. units, as That's such. Right.
2: 89 of the 91 uh, had a male working, two guys were unemployed. Uh, this is in 1950. And within 20 years, there was not a working, there was not an intact family on the whole block. Wow. I mean, that's how, how catastrophic the collapse was.
1: So, Jack, this is a very interesting narrative that you're spinning, and no better person than an Irish American to tell a really good story and to get the real story out. So, was it social and economic decay, cultural decay, uh, ward politics, perhaps?
2: There's a combination of things. Everything that could possibly hit Newark hit it, including a corrupt government, uh, the, the eagerness to knock down the whole neighborhood. So, you know, your corrupt pals could get the demolition contract. This, I mean, the Sopranos is based out of Newark. Yeah. And uh, one of the family, the family that it's based on is called the Boyardo family. And they were in the demolition business, right? <laughs> so, you know, you'd have these urban renewal projects where they knocked down, including in Italian neighborhoods, which was little Italy got totally wiped out so they could build a horrible housing project that was uh, useless within 10 years. And a lot of that had to do with rewarding your friends, getting contracts to your friends. Mm -hmm. Some of the government planning was benign, but it was misguided, and some of it was uh, subverted by people wanting to make a buck out of things. So you had that going on. But the two major forces were this. One was the collapse of the black family uh, under pressure from the U.S. government, which kept incentivizing uh, uh, fatherlessness. Oh, you have a father at home? No, no welfare. No father at home? No public housing. Father at home? No Medicaid. Father at home? No food stamps. It was, so
1: let me stop you there, Jack. They were encouraging them to go on the welfare rolls.
2: And the way you get on welfare is not to have a working Not job.
1: to have a thing. And Yeah, okay.
2: So there are tons of incentives. And on top of that, you had the radicalization of black politics in the late 1960s. And that lit a fuse. The combination of people were frustrated by their uh, family disorganization, anger at the fact that they don't have family and have parents in the home. Uh, and now they're given a a motive, they're given an incentive, they're given someone to hate. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're being told this by the radical, you know, firebrands, you know, it's not your fault, it's white man's fault, you know? And the white man in this case happened to be people who are no better off than they were, you know, living in, you know, third floor or fourth floor walk-ups in a a city that is, uh, you know, old and decaying. So, but in the media accounts, those of us left behind in the cities became the villains. Whether mm. we stayed, we became Archie Bunker. if we left, we were white flight. anyhow, I'm trying to straighten that yeah, it's out That's very
1: that. interesting and it's 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 a way more nuanced than the popular narrative um plain devil's advocate, if you will uh there are those who will strongly and do strongly disagree with what you're saying. They'd say, "Oh, Jack, come on, the segregation back then, and you know a lot of white people held up their nose if they saw a black person walking down the street. Was it like that
2: back in you those know, days? Uh, I'm not going to say there wasn't any discrimination because there was, but by 1950 in Newark, all institutional discrimination had had come to an end. By 1960, 65, and across America, all institutional discrimination was essentially over. You'd have, and this is where white breaks down, and this is why I'm using the, the notion of an ethnic diaspora, because in Newark, there were just, there were many ethnic groups, but the three dominant ethnic groups circa 1960 were Irish, Italian, and Jewish, and they each reacted differently to the forces that were uh, set loose. Uh, the Jews in Newark, uh, you know, they had a brilliant neighborhood. They had the best public high school in the country. It was 83% Jewish and as late as 1960, and it was a, it was a remarkably productive group of people. The most productive people in America, period. I mean, there's no yeah. way doing that in terms of academics, in terms of uh, yeah. uh, show business, whatever. Uh, whatever, whatever measure. It's brilliant, other brilliant, a brilliant community. Yeah. yeah. They were also the most welcoming, the most mm-hmm. liberal, the ones who set up committees to welcome Black neighbors to their community, right? The opposite of that, the Irish are in between. The opposite of that were the Italians. They were the most resistance, they were the most uh, defensive, they were the, the least welcoming. Well, here's what happens. By 1970, virtually all the Jews were gone. They all left, right? But the Italians fought it out (laughs) to the the bitter end. They didn't want to leave. And they were not afraid to take matters into their own hands, you know? What happened with the Jews, and that's why when you talk about white flight, if you don't break it down ethnically, it doesn't make any sense.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, the problem with the Jews is they were totally dependent on public schools. And as soon as the schools, you know, you know, the Italians are just happy sending their, I'm generalizing here, but yeah, uh, if they have a mediocre high school in their neighborhood, which they did at Behringer and Newark, they were okay with it. You know, just as long as the kids were safe and they learned something, they get on and whatnot. Where the Jews had very high standards for the kids, very high standards for teachers, for the academics. They wanted their kids to go to Ivy League schools, et cetera. They couldn't deal with schools that were no longer functioning the way they once did. And they were gone. Uh, I mean, I looked at the in 1958, there was only a handful of black students at Wake High School. I looked at the 1970 yearbook. There were 13 white students in a graduating class of 400. Wow. At Barringer, meanwhile, that didn't happen. You know, Barringer is in North Newark, the Italian part of Newark. That was my neighborhood high school. So, uh, first of all, it just is wrong to talk about white flight in general without breaking it down ethnically. And the Jewish pattern repeated itself in every major city in America as the Italian pattern. The Irish pattern was, by 1960, Irish were no longer cohesive uh, ethnically in Newark as a neighborhood. They were at the whims, plus the Irish political power in Newark had dissolved by 1962 when the last Irish mayor lost his election.
1: So what part did the race riots play in any of this
2: uh they they were the uh, final straw you know that for so many people i talked to said that was it i can't i can't deal with this anymore
0: mm-hmm. so
2: many of the merchants lost their businesses uh, and those were mostly jewish merchants too by the way uh in my the riots singed my neighborhood they they at the the fringe of my neighborhood had full-scale rioting what saved my neighborhood was that the armory was a block from my house. you know uh <laughs> That was wow. not a place you'd want to attack, but no, uh, it was. It lasted five days. It was frightening. Uh, and, Where were you? Uh, Do you remember it as a child? I was, at, I was at camp that summer, so I was watching it on TV. But all my relatives and friends were there, and everyone I talked to has a story. Even people who were sympathetic to the rioters have stories. So, uh,
1: your dad you know, it, was a New York cop.
2: Yes, than... my, my, and that's you know uh, obviously influences my thinking in many ways, and. Uh, my father's a, a Newark cop. Uh, my uncle, uh, also Irish, Newark cop. You know, we have a lot of cops in our family, my couple of cousins. Yeah. In fact, last month, uh, John, when I was in New Jersey, I had my one of my cousins uh, who's still in a Newark police force give me a, an insider tour of the whole city. And we went out on two days. And I'm not sure I'd have gone without a it was an unmarked car, but everyone knew it was a police car. And <laughs> I had an armed guard to uh, guide me, you know, so. Oh, gosh.
1: Did uh, you stop off at McGovern's? I didn't know I didn't stop. A watering
2: sure, hole? But, <laughs> but I did go through my old neighborhood, you know, which is not the same as it was, but.
3: Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in
0: need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council.
1: My guest is Jack Cashel, the Irish-American author, journalist, and filmmaker here, telling us about his native New York, New Jersey, and what went wrong in the nineteen sixties, and it will be a major central focus of his latest book. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. What was the proportions of uh, ethnic groups in New York back then? You mentioned Irish, Italian, Jewish, and then Black. What would it? How did it break out?
2: Let's say now. Let's take the year nineteen sixty. Uh, at that time, Newark was about 35% black. Uh, I would say it, it was probably 25% Italian, 20%, 25% Jewish. What's, mm-hmm. I think it's 85. I'll pull those percentages back in each case, 20, 50, 20 to 20, 75, 15% Irish. By that time, 10% Polish, you know, yeah. German. Uh, I, the Portuguese had yet to move into Newark. Uh, the Puerto Ricans were beginning to come into Newark. So you had a lot of mixes by my generation every irishman i know had a german in the woodpile somewhere you know there was some yeah. german <laughs> in the background somewhere you know
1: is your book going to cover other
2: neighborhoods in america yes.
1: or will will new york be the, the central focus
2: the central focus will be uh my neighborhood uh in roseville my neighborhood i see starting roseville uh branching outwards in newark and from there uh, taking these experiences and looking at other cities that had had comparable experiences. So what, what you see, John, is that the, the Jewish experience in Newark was a lot more like the Jewish experience in Chicago mm-hmm. uh, than it was like the Italian experience in Newark. And the Italian experience in Newark was a lot more like the Italian experience in Boston than it was the, you know, uh, the Jewish experience in Newark. So it's, it, it's more by ethnic group is in terms of the response. You have a
1: rare and interesting insight to, let's call it, urban decay, urban breakdown, and you've got a lot of ideas. How could a city like New York, how could it have been saved?
2: Well, that's an excellent question. And uh, yesterday, I saw it because I uh, – and I, I've been talking to individuals. I've been interviewing them over the phone. I've spoken to probably 50 people by now. And yesterday, I spoke to a woman who grew up on my block – uh, who is, became the mayor of a suburban city, right? And she's a Democrat. Uh, the day before, I spoke to a woman who lived across the street from me who became the mayor of a, of a New Jersey suburb and in, as a Republican, right? Mm-hmm. So they have different perspectives. And when I talked to the Democrats, I asked them that question. I said, how could this even say what differently could we have done? I mean, because no one can deny that it collapsed. Mm. Now it's the question of why did this happen? And uh, this is what I get from uh, my liberal friends. Uh, And they'll say something like this, well, you know, uh, people were so prejudiced, we needed to teach them not to be prejudiced. We needed to, to do a better job of teaching them not to be prejudiced, right? And then I go back and look at the experience of the Jews in Newark who are doing exactly that, you know, working very hard to overcome prejudice, working very hard, they're essentially a liberal population trying to do the right thing, and it didn't work out, uh, you know, so it, it, it's a there's a naivete in that perspective. Right. Who, who left Newark earlier, like the woman I was talking to yesterday, was older. So she grew, she, she was finished. She had grown up and by the 50s, she had graduated, blah, 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 and moved on. Those of us who grew up in the 60s, and she said this. So much depends not on where you live, but when you live there, right? So, I, my experience as an adolescent was entirely in the 1960s. My brother's was in the 1950s. We had, you know, a whole, we lived in different worlds right? and we have a hard time communicating uh, between ourselves sometimes.
1: You grew up Irish American in Europe. What was it like then?
2: The Irish American experience then was much more traditional than it is now. I mean, mm-hmm. so on St. Patrick's Day Parade, uh, for St. Patrick's Day it was a reverential day, you know. It hadn't yet degenerated into the the, the rolling debauch that it is today. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's the, a that's the rolling bar, ending up at a <laughs> piano bar singing "Danny Boy." But uh, but I, you know, remember my father and brother and uncles wearing uh, top hats and you know like morning coats and you know in you'd march and uh, I remember uh, you know my. My sister's husband is from Ireland I heard his parents are from Ireland and I, I marched in one of their parades oh probably in 1982 that's the last one I was in, in New Jersey and they were very sober I' right? very serious and and boy <laughs> if you screwed up when you' you're marching you know and I was right at the at the bishopric you know <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it was very you know I like that because the, the parades we have here in Kansas City where I live are, are just a joke I mean they're yeah. you know you wear a fluorescent crane shirt you get drunk all day and you know. A little
1: Hollywood, a little yeah. Disney. What role, and I'm assuming it played a big role, did the church play in your neighborhood?
2: Uh, it was the heart of our neighborhood. Mm. It was the living, breathing heart of our neighborhood. My neighborhood was overwhelmingly Catholic, and uh, it was uh, it was the, there was only, there was many Italians when I grew up as there were Irish, but we were the two dominant ethnic groups. There were some others. Yeah, I, I in my grade school, I found that here's this is hard for some people to believe, but I was looking through clippings. And I found a, you um, know, I'm a classic baby boomer, you know, I mean, just put me in perspective, but I found a clipping from my kindergarten year at St. Rose Lima uh, in Newark. And it says, the headline was a little awkward. It says, sister cares for 148 children in her kindergarten class, right?
1: Oh, geez. So oh my gosh
2: and then it says it says 74 in the morning 74 in the afternoon I asked people what's <laughs> a big class you know you ask a oh. public school teacher oh 25 well in my fourth grade class we had 66 you know so the everyone went to the church and everyone to school school was free we didn't have to have yeah. so many parishioners yeah there's a public school on my block literally a uh, hundred yards from my house if that, and you went there if you really screwed up. That you held that over your head, you know. Screw mm-hmm. up here, you're gonna end up at Rosewood. You know, you're gonna end up down there. They were at, at least a half a grade, grade behind us. The rituals of the church were just a big part of our lives. You know, all the you know Christmas and Easter and everything, and people got dressed up and. You know, I yeah. could walk to school, I was two blocks away.
1: Did sound like um, happy times before things started to decline, intact families, law and order, yeah. um, all of those things.
2: Yeah, and when I talk to these people, and I, you know, a lot of these people I haven't talked to in 50 years, what comes out of these kind of discussions is how much they loved our neighborhood. It was very close to the perfect neighborhood, because mm. we not only had the church at the center of it, but we had two movie theaters within two blocks, we had... Every shop lined up and down Arm Street, which was our main street, the diner, the teen hangout, uh, you know, soda pop fountain, the, you know, the candy store, the little grocery store, the AMP. It was a totally functional, harmonious world. Crime was non existent. I mean, it was, you never heard of it in the 50s. And the 60s, everything changed. Crazy. You know, the change got crazy. But, and to deny that is to subject the people who experienced, is to blame the victim is to subject the people who experience that to uh, a level of scrutiny that other crime victims are not subject to.
1: Traditionally, and even to this day, the Irish, Irish Irish-Americans have been big Democrats, and we have one in the White House, Joe Biden, who traces his ancestry to Ireland and to pretty close to me back at home in the Wee County of Louth. I think he has some ancestors buried up there, and then another set buried over in Mayo. You talked about policies, political policies, social policies, and so on. Weren't those introduced and promoted by the Democratic Party? Yes. In other words, did our own people contribute to our own decline?
2: Uh, Good question. Yes. And it's interesting um, because that factors into my book also. In 1956, for instance, uh, Eisenhower, who was Republican president, Carried Essex County, which is Newark's County, uh, easily. I mean, like sixty to forty, right? Nineteen sixty comes. Everyone in my world was for JFK, right? Yeah, we were all for Kennedy. I was twelve, but I was I I, I was a paper boy and I consumed my product. I, I still remember how I felt when he won the West Virginia primary or the Wisconsin primary. I mean, that's how how deeply into it I was. My parents who had voted for Eisenhower, like all the you know, like most people in, in my neighborhood voted for Kennedy. And then the story became Kennedy wins in spite of being Catholic. No, Kennedy won because he was Catholic. Essex County, which had gone 60-40 Eisenhower in 56, went 60-40 Kennedy in 1960. That's the impact that made. And and, and, uh, Kennedy carried New Jersey by a hair. And it was because of people like us. So we became Democrats by default, Because Kennedy was a Democrat. You know, it wasn't a question of policy. We weren't thinking that far ahead. The guy who could have saved, uh, straightened out America, was a great Irish Catholic, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan.
1: He was good, and he had some interesting sociological papers and thoughts. But you tell us this.
2: Yeah, right, because he was in the Johnson administration. You know, after Kennedy dies, we inherit Johnson as Democrats. And no one's enthused about this, but... I'm identifying as a Democrat. Everyone I know is identifying as a Democrat now because we're all Kennedy fans, you know, even though we're kids. The older people, like the mayor I talked to, the Democratic mayor, well, she was older. She was like 21 when Kennedy comes along. And so then your identification is pretty total as a Democrat. So that's, in a sense, uh, Irish have been largely Democratic before. They they had begun to sort of redistribute their votes, uh, roughly relevant, you know, relative to the whole population. And then with Kennedy, they shifts heavily to the, to the Democratic side. The policies that were in place were not the result of any kind of Irish influence in particular. But Daniel Patrick Moynihan comes along. And in 1965, he, uh, he is a, an assistant secretary of labor. He writes what's come to be known as the Moynihan Report. And he does a brilliant diagnosis of what's happening to the Black family in America under the weight of all these welfare programs, etc., he said, we have to address this above all else. At that time, 25% of black children were living with a single parent. Today, 75%. it's 75%. It's such a tragedy. And we, and it was a tragedy at 25%. And so Moynihan's report uh, is uh, when it's inside the White House, everyone's saying, boy, this is really, yeah, this is really honest. And it was very sympathetic. And he's, you know, uh, it wasn't racist at all. I just read it recently. It, it couldn't have been more sympathetic, it couldn't have been more encouraging. And and so it, then uh, Johnson, Lyndon Johnson releases it publicly, and never known for his moral courage, he gets uh, ba- uh, blasted by the civil rights community. How dare you try to uh, speak? By this time 65, we had moved from, you know, age of, uh, you know, Martin Luther King harmony integration into, you know, black nationalism, black rights, black power. And uh, they blasted him because for daring to have an opinion on the subject. And what's curious, uh, John, uh, the parallel to in 2008, Barack Obama is running for president. Now, here's the guy with the opportunity to actually make a difference. He's already locked up the Democratic primary. He's at Father's Day in a a church in Chicago. And he gives a speech on fatherlessness. It's Father's Day. And then he goes through the statistic. You know, black boys without father, 20 times more likely to end up in prison, 10 times more likely to commit crimes, more likely to drop out of schools. I mean, all this he gets exactly to the heart of the urban problem. And then, uh, and he says, as, as Black men, we have a responsibility to step up. We cannot abandon our roles, blah, blah, blah. It is the speech you, we had always hoped he would get. And the media were a little queasy about it because it's not what they wanted to hear. Three weeks later, on a hot mic uh, in Fox studio, Jesse Jackson, then the leading voice of the civil rights community, speaking to another Black guy, and here's what he does, and this is his exact words. He goes, "Black Barack Obama talking down to black people, I wanna cut his nuts out, right? Wow! And and then he says, then he uses the N word and says, blah, 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 you know, and I can't use it, you can't use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the last we heard from Barack Obama on the subject of fatherhood. Wow. And what's particularly disappointing is because say what you will about Barack Obama, he's a good father. I mean, he's.
1: Yeah, he really is. They have they have a beautiful family. So you mentioned then uh, the Kennedys have brought a lot of the Irish who were dispersing, you know, not necessarily in the Democratic mold then, but their vote was ultimately got Kennedy into the White House, at least in, in part. Um, the Democratic Party of that time and today, polar opposites radically changed. You can't compare them.
2: No, Yeah. I mean, Kennedy, especially, hmm. you know, Kennedy was a, uh, uh, a champion of Joe McCarthy. Bobby Kennedy's oldest child is as Joe McCarthy as his godfather. He worked for Joe McCarthy. Yeah. Joe Kennedy was. And, uh, you know, Joe McCarthy has gotten a bad rap by history, too. So I'm not saying that to make Kennedy's look bad, but to show that they were like m- many Irish Catholics at the time, they were fundamentally conservative. Hmm. Uh, you wouldn't know it from the way they behaved necessarily, but they, they were anti-communist. That was a big part of the Catholic Irish culture. And um, what happened afterwards uh, was that as the party drifted to the left, uh, the many, Irish, many Catholics followed along, many did not. And I, I go to a traditional Catholic church in Kansas City, and if you showed up with an Obama or Hillary Clinton bumper sticker, your car would be key. I mean, <laughs> it is 100% non-democratic. I mean, there may be some people voting for strange outlier parties, but it's, there, is, there are no Democrats, and no one would dare come to our, you know, it just wouldn't happen. Uh, So the the practicing Catholics in America vote largely to the right. Uh, The nominal Catholics, like a Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden, do whatever they want to do. But um, And so the Irish uh, in that population, you know, they were still affected by that skew, by the Kennedy skew. I think it still lingers.
1: Yeah, and there's a a fond um, memory of that. And, um, you know, that's still there. But I'm sure the abortion issue was the final straw as far as a lot of Irish Democrats were. Th- if they were pro-life, let's say, and, um, you know, anti-abortion. And they, didn't that shift a lot of them?
2: It did and has. And it's why uh, so many uh, like serious Catholics now are, are Catholic because they are, are Republicans because of the abortion issue.
0: Yeah, Teddy absolutely. Kennedy
2: had a chance to to save millions of babies. I mean, literally, just cut right to the chase. He uh, came out originally like many Democratic politicians on the pro-life side of that issue, mm. but the feminist movement was sufficiently strong in uh, the 1970s, particularly, that that they washed away their you know the residual restraint of certain people and and took it with them. like Kennedy and and a lot of other Democrats, lesser Democrats who went from being uh, nominally pro-life anyhow to being yeah gung-ho yeah uh, pro-abortion
1: it's an extreme abortion platform that the democrats have so i always thought that if some pro-life voices could stand out within the democratic machine and maybe in the labor movement god help us that probably wouldn't happen and said look we're pro-life we want to we want a pro-life line of thinking here if you will but i mean i wonder would any of that
2: ever fly they wouldn't survive a primary they, they today no no pro uh, life uh, democrat of any stature could survive a, a primary and they would be primaried immediately just yeah. one other note on the irish catholic uh, thing, john in 1969 uh so what happened to many of us i transferred my affection really to bobby kent and then he was killed in 68 and so, so you
1: but, remained a democrat for quite a while you were you were a voting. Right, of, I know I um, had,
2: not but I'm, I still wasn't old enough to vote. But I oh, I see.
1: You're, well, you are a kid it's on your paper. No, I was not. Uh, I was not
2: old enough end. in '68. Yeah, but in, in 1969, mm-hmm. uh, Teddy Kennedy, of course, goes off the bridge and Chap it. Right okay. now, for a lot of people, that may have seemed uh, relatively insignificant in terms of larger political development. But the Marriott, by this time, we moved to a Newark housing project. The Kepckneys lived in our project. Mary Jo Kepckney's family oh, had really? lived. In that. I didn't know them, and they had moved by this time. But many of my neighbors knew them, and they were horrified. And then they began to see it as uh, the Kennedys as a class, you know, began to see the class differential between the Kennedys and the way they treated little people and the way they saw themselves. Hmm. So there was a beginning of a movement away from the Kennedy, uh, especially after the two brothers were killed. Teddy did a great job in severing a lot of Irish Catholics from the Democratic Party.
1: Yeah, no, there was a lot of affection. I mean, uh, a lot of affection for the Kennedys in Ireland, and I got to say, I have a soft spot for JFK myself. I think an unrealized dream cut short, but we, of course,
2: we'll never know. Yeah, you know, I have a soft spot too. Whenever I see clips of JFK, you know, I, I still think of him the way I did when I was a twelve year old, you know, a thirteen year yeah.
1: old. I, I want to look again at the book that you're doing research, and uh, when will this book be published? On the Dispossessed Tales from America's Great song? Ethnic Diaspora, if I have the working title correct.
2: It's pretty close. Uh, I keep changing it. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, it's the untold story of America's Great Ethnic Diaspora. This mm. is the title. Mm. My deadline is September 1, which means the book will come out probably in January of 2023. And what I think I'll do, I usually do a book TV. I've done 11 different book TVs on C-SPAN and, uh, you know, where they film your presentation.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: so I, I'm sure I'll come to New Jersey to do that one so well you know, I hope
1: we, I hope we'll meet up at that point too yeah. jack. and I want to talk um try to get in about your career you I mean you're a prolific writer and I you have your own website jack no, cashel.com you just know just Oh, cashel.com thank you for yeah. the correction
3: yeah.
1: your most recent one was Barack Obama's promised land and then you had I don't know, was this a title, Unmasking Obama? Yes, right. Okay. And then you've collaborated on numerous documentaries, um, including, apparently, Pope Emeritus Benedict.
2: Yeah, I did. I, I had the, uh, uh, the wonderful opportunity to interview uh, Pope Benedict, XVI when he was still Cardinal Ratzinger. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, it was in 1998. Uh, we did a documentary for the traditional movement of the Catholic Church
1: now, when you uh, say the tra- a lot of people would get that, but some won't. That's the Latin Rite Catholics, yeah. correct? Right, right, right. that's and, correct. And you're a, you go when you you mentioned you, you go to a traditional church in Kansas. That's it, it's the Latin Rite Mass. That's correct.
2: And and within the Latin Rite, by the way, this is the Latin. Uh, this is the order, the Priestly Fraternity Saint Peter, that is uh, fully aligned with Rome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's another order that's you know on. Uh,
1: yeah. So you're you in there. communion, and uh, all's good.
2: Right. Now uh, that doesn't mean because it wasn't all good, Jack. You know, I might not. I might have to cut this interview short. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was a great story. I mean, I I I make documentaries as well, and this one they I contracted with us to go to Rome uh, to celebrate the uh, revival of the traditional movement under Pope John Paul II Mm. uh, and Cardinal Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict XVI, was a total champion of the traditional movement. Very interesting. And I got to do an interview with him one on one. Uh, at the time. And it was my most cosmopolitan moment ever since he uh, was, wasn't was comfortable in English. So we did the interview in French, right?
1: And this was in the Vatican.
2: Yeah. I, yeah. I was at, uh, around the Vatican, just outside okay. of the Vatican. It was at a big conference. Mm-hmm. And um, was, you know, my spoken French is much better than my comprehension. Right. Mm-hmm. So I would ask him a question. It would sound halfway reasonable. Like, say uh, and then he'd say something back to me. And I was I said, "Oh, <laughs> you know, then I'd ask him another question and <laughs> go back and translate it later on." You know, so,
1: mm-hmm. wow, then, that's, that that's incredible access.
2: Yeah, and then as and, and a, an amazing moment of uh, of kismet or serendipity. Yeah, I was in Paris in two thousand five for a, a conference on another subject. that i have written about the flight of TWA Flight Eight Hundred. Uh, the plane, yeah,
1: the TWA flight. That's one of your.
2: And I was there for uh, like a, a little conference. And I had a day to kill, so I just you know, meandered down to Notre Dame. I walk into Notre Dame. Like I can say the date, April 19, thousand five. And usually in Notre Dame, you've probably been there. They just yeah, I was. Yeah, I was there a couple you know, of people years. People circulating around the outside, you know. Yeah. But they had a section reserved for the faithful. It was filled with faithful. I yeah. said, so, What's going on here? And then I see these TV screens up above, and I'm thinking it's kind of blasphemous. What are you doing, TV? Some French talking head, you know? Yeah. And then I'm not there thirty seconds, literally, and then they switch. Uh, to the balcony of the Vatican. And they said, we have a new Pope, right? Oh, my goodness. And then they said, uh, uh, and say his name, you know, Colonel Joseph Ratzinger. And I was really overcome, and I was standing there, and I said, hey, I know that guy. <laughs> <You> know, so, <laughs> there is an American couple next to me, right? We're just standing, you know, looking at TV, like, around. The church is filled with people. And they all, here's what they did. To a person, they stood up and applauded, right? The faithful stood mm-hmm. up and applauded. The uh, woman next to me says, This is a terrible day for women. You know, she says, right? And awesome. her husband says, Shut up, honey, come on. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't, that, that spared me from having to do the same thing. So, um, anyhow, uh, that happens. And then about 20 minutes later, I walk outside. And by this time, the media have to send it on the square in front of Notre Dame. And they're interviewing people, and they asked me for an interview, and I did a half assed French interview, you know. Yeah. You he said, "Bon choix," you know. Yeah. He respects the church tradition, blah blah blah. And then they roll their eyes and walk away, and I'm thinking, okay, my French isn't great, I get it. But I get back, I'm watching TV, in, uh, in my hotel room that night, and they said, and the, and the, the uh, media universally went into this mode. Today they announced the uh, new pope, and and at Notre Dame, the uh, response was total disappointment, right? <laughs> I'm thinking, well, how did they avoid the 1,000 people who stood up and cheered, you know? Didn't It'd they let the church shoe? But what they were doing, just like they do here, hmm. is they edit the news selectively to hmm. uh, achieve the narrative they want to achieve. It doesn't matter what the reality was. And the media in uh, Europe, because I, I I was spent the next week or two in France, and in fact, I stayed with the priest in uh, or do, was um outrage it was like when trump was elected in, in the united states as president it was a comparable reaction
1: well yeah that's media bias and that's something um you've studied media and you in fact have come in for some criticism by people who think you're really big on these conspiracy theories and so on and maybe what you're doing is setting the record straight sometimes
2: that's it i i only deal in facts john i i don't believe in conspiracy you know i mean i I don't believe in putting anomalies together and trying to pull a theory out of it. You know, it's, mm. I start with the logic. I mean, if there's no logic to dictate a series of a sequence of events, then the anomalies aren't going to add up. But yeah. there are many, and unfortunately, they're becoming more and grander, uh, mistold or untold stories. Yeah. I mean, if you look just at the last, the entirety of the Trump administration, where he was dogged by this Russia collusion scandal, right? Yeah, which was echoed by our intelligence community, by the White House, by uh, every major media except for Fox. And they did it for three years, and they still haven't apologized.
1: Yeah. And up on your website, you have a fascinating piece that you wrote about a new movie that came out on the presidential election and dealing with this whole idea that was rigged. And you have an interesting thesis on that, if you could explain it, the timing right. of the movie and events that occurred just about the same time.
2: Yeah, because I went to see the premiere night. It was in theaters on Monday, May 2nd. It's called 2,000 Mules. Yeah. And it's about, you know, we, we've, I've always suspected that Democrats stole the election. By the way, they stole the 1960 election. Now that's pretty much given. Yeah. That's the one, Kennedy one. I didn't want to know it at the time, but it's... Mm-hmm. It's true. They, um, this is the question that I had for the people who were saying it was stolen was how? I need to see the mechanism. How? How is this done? What 2,000 Mules does is it does a brilliant job of laying out how it was done. And, uh, and all it took was five cities, key cities, and five key states. And, and that was, um, you know, people can see the movie. I, I don't want to spend too much time on it. But so it was utterly riveted. My, my audience, my theater was full. The audience response was they were galvanized. It was just totally cathartic. I get home and I go on Twitter immediately to see what the Twitter response is. Well, there is no Twitter response because that day, that time, that evening, while the movie was being premiered all across America, they were leaking the uh, Alito draft uh, for the uh, Roe uh, decision. And that's all anyone wanted to talk about. And then you know, I, I believe that was coordinated. I'm, I, you know, I'm just speculating here, but I think that was coordinated to uh, lessen the impact of 2,000 mules. But as it turned out, they didn't need to do that because Fox uh, and Newsmax are uh, afraid to go there. They're afraid. Really? They're not allowed. I mean, they are literally the Fox uh, News host. I mean, Tucker Carlson, you know, Hannity, et cetera are not allowed to talk about 2,000 mules.
1: Is the fear uh, that it could unleash some kind of um, social unrest, exacerbate tensions, you know, so severely divide the country that we might not recover from it? I mean, it's pretty radical if it can be conclusively proved that it was rigged and stolen.
2: Uh, that's part of it, I'm sure. and uh, But part of it, on the, uh, you know, and John, you've probably seen this enough to, to know that a lot of the conservative media in the United States are really pretty timid. Yeah. And they'll uh, cover a story after it's been out in the the marketplace for a while, but they're not going to break a story. They're not going to introduce a story that might possibly be wrong. I mean, the major media have no problem with that. They had no problem with running with the the Russia collusion story. They won. They gave themselves Pulitzer Prizes for it. (laughs) I mean, literally. In 2018. (laughs) Hand them back. (laughs) 2018, Washington Post and New York Times shared the Pulitzer for their, you know, breakthrough stories on the Russia collusion, uh, you know. Narrative. It's, it's, it's
1: extraordinary. Yeah. yeah.
2: And, and, and as you know, it's, United States isn't half bad compared to Ireland, say, or yeah. most of the European countries.
1: Well, you've been around long enough. You know how the media works, how it can be manipulated, and there are handlers out there. And I'm, I'm sure you've seen dirty tricks over the years where some scandal was about to break, and then the handlers figured, you know what? We leak something else to take the attention away.
2: That's what, that happens often, yes. Yeah. And that may have been the case with, uh, with the Alito document, except that... Um, that would make more sense if the Alito people had leaked it because what it does is it, it minimizes the impact of the full announcement mm. so that by that time it'll be, you know, when when the left does it, it's so that when something comes out, which yeah. they do what they've been doing with the Russia collusion story, little dribs and drabs. Yeah. So oh, that's old news. That's not. That yeah. doesn't matter. But as a political strategy with the Alito document, uh, I, I don't get it. I'm just at a loss to understand that
1: you know why it was i mean one thought was that it was a trial balloon get it out there and then massage it later on and just see how the country reacts but the media was all over it and sending their cameras out to film these protests and so on and then the country was short of baby formula where was the same kind of coverage
2: yeah no and the idly go together i mean it's Gonna have babies, babies, They're and yeah, exactly. It's yeah. kind of ironic. Uh, yeah. I
1: want to get a little bit in about your Irish background, which we've discussed. You've spent time in Ireland, and yes. we have a lot of listeners over there. Were you doing research, or what, what was going on over there that took you to Ireland?
2: Well, you know, I i visited as a kid. I mean, when I was, uh, you know, hitch- I hitchhiked to Ireland in 1970, actually, mm. just as a bark, you know, and yeah, you know, my family is. Named Cashel, and we have a rock there in our honor. You know, big, big rock honor. of Cashel, <laughs> right? And <laughs> it's the spelling of uh, my family name is changed over all. You know, had his names changed, and your yeah. yeah. probably yeah.
1: and to change yeah. over a few Jamisons and okay. all that kind of stuff.
2: The real breakthrough came is my wife is a professor of you know her Irish studies is her specialty. Okay, so uh in our my you know I've been back a couple times as a visitor, but in ninety two ninety three we spent the whole year in, in Galway and my kids were then eight and 13, two girls. So they went to school there and it was a wonderful experience. And that was a, a wonderful time in Ireland. And um, Galway was the most, it was the perfect city uh, at that time. I, I, and I've been back since it's not quite the same, partly because prosperity has put too many cars on the road for the amount of roads you have. And,
1: yeah. rice. Right. You've got so, that
2: right. And whereas in, and the I politics
1: even, has changed, as you know. As yeah, you, right, and the cultures. You and, I have, you and I have discussed various referenda and so on.
2: Yeah, because when I was there, there was a, a referendum on, on whether Irish women could go to England for an abortion. Uh, divorce was still illegal. Uh, and not
1: just that. I'm going to stop you there, Jack. It just, it, this is an interesting statistic. Um, I won't comment on the yay or nay on that vote, but there was a very small vote for on the divorce referendum, it was a rainy day in Ireland. I mean, uh-huh. bad, solemn kind of day. That's maybe that's kind of not unusual. Yeah, there was, was only very few people actually. Yeah, right. Um, very few people went out to vote. The vote was only twenty-one percent of the voting electorate. Twenty-one percent, something like that. So there was no, there was no even demand. Interestingly enough, for for divorce in Ireland, and it just got in by a way for thin margin.
2: Yeah, I, probably because most people were conflicted about the. The debate, you know, whether which side to vote. I'm just guessing, but yeah, I don't. Undecideds were probably very high for that. Yeah, yeah, Um, because there's an argument could be made either way. I get it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a long debate and it's a long discussion, and there's different. You know, there's. uh, I mean, for Catholics who take their faith seriously, then there's the annulment process, and you know, till death us do part, and then there's the civil thing. But then we moved on to other referenda. On an on a extreme abortion, if you will, or not. Right. Well, that, that's not a way of characterizing it, but legalizing abortion, right? Yeah. They had to push that so hard. Nobody wanted it. They kept pushing. And then the Irish government set up some uh, a civic. The name will come to me, but um, they outsourced it, if you will, to uh, a civilian sort of entity to kind of do all the dirty work. And then it was downhill from there.
2: You know, because I went back in year 2000. I went back 2005, 2012. And each time uh, I, I went, John, you could see that unlike the United States, what Ireland lacked, and probably still and still does, as far as I could tell, is a uh, a conservative media infrastructure hmm. of any consequence. There's no Rush Limbaugh, you know. Yeah. There's no Tucker Carlson. Mm-hmm. There's no, uh, and it was that was desperately needed 30 years ago
1: in Ireland. There's,
2: yeah, because I'd be watching the media, and you know, there were limited choices as to, to what you watch and hear, and there was there would be no alternative voices allowed to to present. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and even on issues like the travelers, for instance.
1: Irish travelers, yeah. Right. Uh, no, well, I won't say ethnic group, but they're kind of a separate group in Ireland, if you will. Lovely well, people.
2: Before Ireland had an ethnic group, they had the tinkers. You know, you call them yeah, tinkers, yeah, then, yeah. and travelers. Mm. And in my experience with them, <laughs> Kind of scary. I, tell you. I had a couple of run-ins, <laughs> uh, and I it would seem to me that you were it was that one should be able to discuss them in some rational way. You know their history, their what they do, how they behave. You yeah. know, but you weren't. You know, and and that sort of set the precedent for how you how Ireland would then deal with various ethnic groups that came in or gay people or whatever. Yeah, you weren't allowed to discuss it. Essentially, I'm exaggerating just a little bit, but you know better than I.
1: Well, we saw that during the um, abortion referendum a few years ago. The media was extraordinarily biased yes. um, and there was a lot of misinformation. And right up to uh, the final vote, uh, it looked as if the eighth amendment would stay in place and that was the pro-life eighth amendment as i like to characterize it but as we saw it was repealed under extraordinary pressure from our political leaders who should have known better and had once promised to retain it but did a flip no moral courage
2: right and the youth vote was overwhelming it was discouraging
1: yeah Yeah, it really is but um there's there's hope there and uh, the other kind of extraordinary thing is that when you have pro-life marches in ireland and you had coming up to the eighth amendment like thousands and thousands of irish people took to the streets hundreds of thousands and when there's a pro choice rally no exaggeration on this you might get hundreds right get the same numbers it's always this radical fringe changes these things amazing
2: yeah, you know, because in 2009, uh, I made a documentary about the uh, March for Life in Washington each year, which takes place on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. It's in mid January. Yeah. I was actually right after the inauguration that year of Obama. So the, the platforms are still up. And, you know, 350,000 people show up, right? Yeah, yeah. Doesn't make the news. Right? No, never makes the news. Doesn't make the news. I had there be a half a dozen, you know, counter protesters with their little signs and that would make the news or they would show one picture of some people as though it was like a, some balanced coverage. It's crazy.
1: So I've had this debate and discussion with people and everybody has busy lives uh, in New York and elsewhere. So, but when you start to study the reality of things, you start to see, puts things in perspective and this is not yay or nay for Donald Trump at all, but he has tapped into that. Yes. He, he in a sense, knows the american soul in my mind better than a lot of established politicians.
2: Well you're right cuz he was the first uh republican president ever to show up at a at the march for life, right? Yeah. That means that Reagan didn't show up. Uh neither of the bushes showed up. No. Uh but Trump and let's face it, he was not a moral paragon coming in. No, between. absolutely
1: not. Let's not get carried away here, no. And, and he
2: never made any bones he about being... By- I think he was influenced by his own supporters. Hmm. And so I think he, he went from being just like a, someone manipulating or willing to exploit the sentiment to someone who began to believe. Because if you're exposed yeah. to the pro-life side... You see that they have all the good arguments, both moral and in the United States constitutional. It's hard to, to I was, you know, coming at it as a Democrat young. And then when uh, Roe v. Wade is passed and when I'm 20, right, it's like my get out of jail free card, <laughs> you know, sexual revolution, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I was on that. I was on that side. And then I, until the scales started to fall from my eyes, I began to see things. I had my own baby, uh, you know? Yeah. Um, You know, and and then the constitutional law became clear to me. And and then I I found that I have no argument on behalf of the pro-choice side. There is no argument. There's no moral argument. And in the United States, there's no constitutional argument. And I think uh, the good thing about the last month or so is that that debate has started in the United States. People are beginning to understand what Roe v. Wade did, the rights it took away from them, Mm -hmm. Uh, and we're making incremental changes here. Most people are going to be stuck in their mindset forever, but you just need to change 10% at the middle and you can make a difference.
1: Absolutely. And of course, there's been so much tragedy and heartbreak and trauma as a result. Right. So there's all that history too is is coming, coming to the fore. Uh, Jack, uh, we're getting close to running out of time. I just, uh, of all the books you've written and novels, what's the top two, three that you're most proud of?
2: That I've written? Uh, I would say... Um, I would say my most recent book on TWA Flight 800, which is called uh, TWA Flight 100, The Crash to Cover Up the Conspiracy, and I would go back to uh, deconstructing Obama, a book I wrote in uh, uh, 2011, because mm-hmm. I was the one who broke the I broke the story that uh, terrorist Bill Ayers was a had a major hand in the writing of Barack Obama's book Dreams from My Father, and uh, in 2008 when that came out. It could have flipped the election. So for a month, I lived with the possibility that I was the guy <laughs> who could reverse the course of history. Oh, gee, that's a nice one. Oh, wow. No, it's really tense. You know, phone rings. I don't know. But what happened is that's when I learned how just how utterly timid and cowardly are the conservative media. are. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't expect any help from the liberal media, but my thesis was so solid. Yeah. All I needed was people just to sit down and look at my evidence, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, look, I needed someone like the National Review or the Weekly Standard or Fox News to say, hey, this guy's got a point. I mean, Let's
1: get just, him on. Let's get him on right. Hannity or
2: something. Right. I mean, Rush Limbaugh talked about it, bless his heart. But uh, once he talked about it, that was it. It died. I had a month. I went to Washington. I met with people, and I just saw the way the apparatus worked. They were already packing up their bags, looking for new jobs. Gosh. Uh, they had stayed, resigned, you know, so yeah. the story died. And what in, so in, in the book uh, deconstructing Obama," I talk not only about his real life, but I talk about the, the dynamic of what happens when you get a hold of a major story. so:
1: If listeners and viewers, because this will go up on YouTube, want to learn more about you buy your books, find out what you're up to, can you give us any of the addresses to handle
2: lcom I beat all my relatives to that website 25 years ago. they're still mad at me. So
1: <laughs> you gotta, that's okay. You gotta, well, you know, Irish have Irish hold grudges, but we love each other. Um, <laughs> and and you want to hear from people from the neighborhood that New York. Yes, ideally,
2: the closer to my neighborhood, the better. But anyone uh, in the United States who has a story of comparable story of, that they've
1: left our neighborhood and they can have right, all these right. memories.
2: Also, by the way, dear, uh, I'm going to be in Ireland in uh, late July with fifty of my closest relatives. We're going to Kinsale, right? Mm-hmm. And so, anyone who's in a neighborhood stop by
1: <laughs> um, I'm, we're planning some kind of a trip. I better be careful because my relatives will be listening and to be all waiting to welcome us. <laughs> but I'm planning some kind of a trip to Ireland this year, but if I'm there in July, I'll try to catch up with you jack been an incredible pleasure um been a, informative, learned a lot, and I recommend people get your books and come to your assistance on the research. Not that you need. A ton of assistance because you've got so much done already for this right. book that's coming out later in the year. We're excitedly waiting for it, Jack. Very good,
2: and John, I wanted to thank you for your help in putting my proposal together on the Ireland book, which is still in the burner. Oh, I just yeah. Gotta, I got to move this one first, and then we'll see what happens.
1: Yeah, what one. should we disclose that on the year that, that book we're talking about? Just yeah, maybe? we you know, in fact,
2: it's the title. I I was undecided on the title of either saving Ireland. Hmm. Uh, you know, from the ruins of the woke revolution or Ireland rising, Uh, you know, depending on uh, when I I did my research, whether I saw enough of a movement to say that there is a grassroots movement in Ireland willing to fight back against the whole uh, woke ideology that sees the Western world.
1: Oh, well, the Irish saves, how would the Irish save civilization? You know, this no, is another. right,
2: exactly. This is the latest. Second chance.
1: Another, right? second chance. <laughs> but we'll, re, we, we'll come together on that at a later point. And right, Jack right. Cash has been just so terrific having you on my show.
2: Well, thank you much. Actually, yeah, the ideal title would be How the Irish Save Civilization Again. <laughs> 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 That's the ideal. So. Hey, John, thanks a lot. Thanks for your help, and uh, we'll be in touch,
1: okay? Well, that's all we have time for this week. And next week, I'm excited to announce more special guests. I have a special interview with a company out of Ukraine, which has been upended by the war in the Ukraine, yet is actually succeeding and operating, despite the odds, as a great company. We'll have the founder on, talking to us from Poland And the co-founder, who is still back in Ukraine. And that's in next week's episode. You won't want to miss it.
0: You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the US at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699 Email gmail at gmail.com That's burndesk B-Y-R-N-E Desk at gmail.com Burndesk at gmail.com Subscribe for free.